Good morning, everyone. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, but this is going to be a part of a series that I'm beginning this morning that I've wanted to teach for some time now. Um, I've titled the series The Beginning of the End. And if you just look briefly at chapter 2, verse 17, um, the prophet Joel, looking forward to the time when the new covenant would begin, said it shall come about in the last days. God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. So the idea is this is the beginning of the final dispensation of time. That God was looking forward to a dispensation of time when the Messiah would rule in heaven and all nations, people of every tribe, language, and culture would serve him. And Acts chapter 1 and 2 is really the beginning of this final phase of existence that God would begin starting with the events in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Part of the reason why I've wanted to teach a series of lessons on these first two chapters, it's very difficult to overstate the importance of these two chapters. Everything that happens before the book of Acts is looking forward to these two chapters and the events that happen in them. Because it's not just that God had always been working towards Jesus, but that he had always been working towards what Jesus would accomplish through his life and ministry, death and resurrection. And then everything that happens after these two chapters and their events points back and really is rooted within the events that happen in these two chapters. So it's very difficult to overstate the importance of these two chapters. I've heard some older preachers um, refer to Acts chapters 1 and 2 as the hub of the Bible. I mean, if you don't know what a hub is, it kind of refers, refers to the center of a wheel. So like all the different parts of the wheel really are spinning off of the center. Um, kind of like the, the center of any series of events or system. And so Acts 1 and 2, Acts chapter 1 and 2, and again, the events that happen within these chapters really do serve as the hub of the Bible. So the second reason, not just the importance of the events in and of themselves, but the second reason why I've been wanting to teach a lesson or a series of lessons on these chapters, Paul instructed Timothy that he also needed to be equipping others to be teachers as well. And I've been thinking about that recently, and that's really been convicting me. And I think the more we understand Acts chapters 1 and 2, the more comfortable we can be with teaching others, even if not these specific chapters more comfortable even in talking to people about Jesus, about the word of God, about the new covenant, about why we are the people that we are. So I think being rooted in understanding these chapters equips us to be more comfortable and confident to evangelize and teach others as well. The third reason why I want to teach through this series is from my experience, most every error in the religious world around us is somehow connected to misunderstanding the importance of these events or just not seeing the importance of these events and applying the principles of these first two chapters, right? So I think not just for the sake of the importance of the events, not just for the sake of teaching others, but ourselves, I think we ourselves will be more firmly rooted in the truth the more rooted we are in the truth of these two chapters. So I'll be teaching through this uh, just, I think, about five lessons is uh, what this series will end up being. So the first 11 verses I have entitled just the Ascension. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the time here when Jesus first ascended into heaven after his resurrection. 
I want to start with just the first three verses and think about the convincing proofs that Jesus offered the apostles in these first three verses for the first part of the lesson. So I'll read these first three verses again. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So first thing to note here, if you notice in the first verse, so the book of Acts is a companion book with Luke's gospel account. So if you go back to the first few verses of Luke's gospel, and um, I won't turn there, but it's also referenced that Luke was being written to Theophilus as well. And you can see in the first verse, he refers to his gospel as the first account he composed, again, to the recipient of Theophilus. So if you will turn back to the end of Luke, though, I want to point out something that I think is helpful to the context of the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts picks up right where Luke ends his gospel. If you will turn back to Luke 24, verses uh, 44 through 53, actually. We'll read 44 through 53, uh, just the end of his first account. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. And just even from the scripture reading, you should recognize the connection between where Luke here is ending and where he begins in the book of Acts. So Luke 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And again, that is the point where Luke picks up in the book of Acts. Jesus being with his disciples after his resurrection, instructing the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, and then ascending into heaven while the disciples look on and are a witness to those things. So he mentions specifically in verse 2, that those orders that Jesus had given, though, by the Holy Spirit, were given to the apostles. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, that's where Jesus, in Luke's account, specifically picks out 12 men who he names as apostles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, you have listed the remaining 11. So remember, Jesus picked 12 men he named as apostles. And of those 12, you remember one, by this time frame, had killed himself as a result of betraying Jesus. And that would have been Judas Iscariot. So 11 apostles at this point are remaining. And again, 
In verse 13, the names of those remaining 11 are given. So these 12 men who who were chosen originally, why were they so important? I think fundamentally it's important to understand that the apostles are the men that Jesus invested the most time in, the most energy, the most wisdom. And so not only were these the men who he had invested the most into, but they would be the most reliable witnesses of Jesus, his character, his teaching, and the nature of his kingdom. What we're going to see through Acts chapters 1 and 2, and this is a goal in this series, what we're going to see very clearly is the importance and the role of the apostles. So about a month ago, I taught a lesson on the purpose of the local church, And I had mentioned that one of the purposes of the local church that we see in Scripture is to both honor and understand roles of leadership within the body of Christ. And one of those roles, the first listed is, he gave some as apostles. And I think sometimes, well, okay, well, what what is apostle? And so I think sometimes it can be kind of difficult to understand, well, what, what makes an apostle an apostle? What is the role of an apostle? What is the work of an apostle? Through Acts chapter 1 and 2, the goal is that that will be very, very clear why apostles were so important and what their role and work was as apostles. But first things first, these are men who were specifically and individually chosen by Jesus himself, named as apostles by him, and they were chosen for a particular work and purpose. Here, they were to wait in Jerusalem and Jesus had appeared to them after his resurrection. We'll see more about their work as we progress through the couple chapters here. But in verse 3, I want to spend some time thinking about this. Um, If you're using the New King James, which is what I read for the scripture reading, it says that to these 11, Jesus had presented himself alive after his suffering, and it says by many infallible proofs. The New American Standard and other translations say many convincing proofs. So the apostles, they saw Jesus after his resurrection. They had heard him teach after his resurrection. They ate with him after his resurrection. They had touched him after his resurrection. And so again, not only do they offer reliable eyewitness testimony of Jesus before he suffered, but really what we see through the book of Acts is they were witnesses of his resurrection as well. So one of the things I want to talk about that I think is very helpful to consider, in the book of Acts, you see perfect confidence in the apostles of Jesus' authority as the resurrected Christ and ruler over all nations. You see perfect confidence in that. So the question is, okay, so they have this confidence because of being eyewitnesses of Jesus, but obviously we are not in that same way direct eyewitnesses of Jesus. So can we have that same confidence or do we have to just, well, I guess they said they saw it, so I don't know, I guess I'll just believe that they claimed it. Or is there something that also is a witness to their witness to where we can have that same confidence? I believe there is, and I just want to spend a moment in this lesson really trying to make clear that we can have as much confidence as the apostles in Jesus and his resurrection. So here's where I'm going to anchor us for just a moment. The testimony of the apostles is verified 100% 
by the astonishing witness of Old Testament writings. And so I just want to walk you through a series of scriptures that were written over the period of the Old Testament scripture that all testify to Jesus and his resurrection. So I'm going to put these scriptures on the board for the sake of time. Um, You can feel free to try to uh, turn there. I'll be moving somewhat fast, or if you would like to write them in your notes. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob was blessing his sons, the 12 sons that constituted the 12 tribes, well, the men who had become the 12 tribes of Israel. When he was blessing Judah, here's what he said. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So this is interesting already as a prophecy because they're in Egypt by this point with Joseph. They are not yet even a nation. And even when they would go into the land of Canaan and become a nation, they wouldn't even have a king among them until hundreds of years after they enter into Canaan, right? But 1,500 years before Jesus, he says this as well, until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh seems to mean man of peace, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So starting in Genesis, here's two things we have. A ruler is going to come from Judah, and this ruler will be like Shiloh, a man of peace, and to him the obedience of all peoples will come. Well, sometime later, eventually, a ruler does come from Judah, and that's David. So a thousand years now before Jesus came, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 13, there's a promise made to David that serves as a vital promise that the Jewish nation was waiting for when Jesus did come into the world. God promised David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is a quote that's mentioned in the book of Acts and other places. And so, again, a prophecy now that David fulfilled in part by becoming a ruler from the tribe of Judah, even still God is looking forward to this time when there would be another one and his kingdom would be a kingdom that would never, uh, that would never be abolished and never be overcome. So now, a psalm written by David, uh, Psalm 22. This is a famous psalm because of quotations that uh, are fulfilled during the crucifixion. And so I want to start there, but the latter half of the psalm, I think, also serves as prophecy in some incredible ways. So about a thousand years before Jesus, David, not specifically even uh, necessarily thinking of the cross himself, David was a man who suffered greatly because of his relationship with God. And so in Psalm 22, he's prophetically describing, uh, or poetically rather, poetically describing circumstances he was in that serve as a parallel prophecy of circumstances that Jesus would more literally endure. So David famously says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? words that Jesus himself stated on the cross. David also says in the psalm, all who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Things that Jesus' enemies literally said as he was being crucified. They pierced my hands and my feet. This This is David saying this in Psalm 22. 
I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, 1,000 years before Jesus, he's talking about his hands and his feet being pierced, which Jesus literally endured. He talks about people staring at him. They're dividing his garments. They're casting lots for his clothing. Again, things that literally happened to Jesus as he was being crucified. The interesting thing is that's not where the psalm ends. These last prophecies, they don't just point to the suffering of God's servant and his king, but also the exaltation that would come through those suffering. So in, this is verses 25 through 28 of the same psalm. So David is appealing to God to deliver him through this suffering. And it sounds impossible because his enemies have surrounded him. They've pierced his hands and feet, so he, he's stuck. There's just, there's no way out. And they're all around him, so it just, it seems hopeless. And yet, the latter part of the psalm is prophetic deliverance. So he mentions in verses 25 through 28, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Notice this. This is, again, prophetically speaking, after the suffering, after the deliverance of God's response, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. So Psalm 22 isn't just prophesying that the Christ would suffer, and would be delivered from what seems to be impossible circumstances to escape, but that somehow he would actually return back to God's people and encourage them to recognize that God will always deliver those who fear him, and even then his kingdom would rule over all the nations through that suffering. So, in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, written about 700 years before Jesus now, near the end of this prophecy of the suffering of God's servant and the purpose of his suffering, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Interesting thing about this, really quick. I remember seeing a video some time ago of somebody who is like an apologist. Um, that means, you know, somebody who's trying to give a defense by evidence. And this person had traveled to Israel and was trying to find people who were religiously Jewish, but they didn't believe in Jesus. So religiously Jewish in Israel, they don't believe in Jesus. And he would read Isaiah 53 to them if they would be willing to listen. And I remember there was one person he read Isaiah 53 to. And he said, who is that talking about? And the person said, oh, that's Jesus. And he said, do you know what passage this is? And he was like, no. He said, that's Isaiah 53. That was written 700 years before Jesus. And then there was a long pause of silence. Because it's obvious who's that talking about, right? But again, this was not written after Jesus or in the time frame of Jesus. 700 years before Jesus, there's this prophecy that Jesus or this Lord or this Christ would present himself as a guilt offering to the point of death. Because a guilt offering, the point of it is it dies and it sheds its blood. 
Yet, notice, he will prolong his days and he will bear the iniquities of many. So somehow this Christ is not only going to die for the sins of all people, but he's also going to return and prolong his days. So again, there's this mystery that Jesus reveals 700 years before Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, now 550 years before Jesus came into the world. Uh, This is connected to a parallel prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar had seen of a statue with four different sections, which really was just speaking of the fact that there would be four kingdoms beginning with Babylon. You've got the head of gold being Babylon, then the chest would be uh, Persia, the legs would be Greece, and then the feet of iron and clay would be the kingdom of Rome. And in chapter 2, it mentions that a little stone would be cut out of a mountain, it would hit the feet of the statue, and thus that stone would grow into a large mountain filling the whole earth. So that kind of nails down, not kind of, it does nail down, the time frame of when the kingdom of God would be established in the Roman Empire. But in Daniel chapter 7, in another series of prophecies relating these four kingdoms together, it says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And that might sound familiar because some of these other prophecies have even mentioned that very thing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So with this passage, I've heard it referred to this way, and I found this very helpful. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is the earthly perspective of Jesus' ascension. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, is the heavenly perspective of Jesus ascending to heaven. So we're going to see in verses 9 through 11, Jesus will be received by a cloud and then taken up to heaven. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Jesus comes in a cloud and is presented to uh, God the Father, and his kingdom is then established forever, never to be destroyed. So, all right, so at the bottom here, what's the point of this series of, of prophecies? This is an unbroken thread of a consistent view of Jesus spanning hundreds of years of time, different authors, different times, different cultures, And in the book of Daniel, there's even different languages that these things are communicated in. There was a a mathematician named Peter Stoner, and he calculated uh, that the odds of Jesus fulfilling even just eight prophecies, just eight prophecies, is one in 100 quadrillion. So it goes like hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions, quadrillions. The way that he illustrated it, I thought was very helpful. So Peter Stoner, again, the way that he illustrated this, he said that if you fill, if you fill the entire state of Texas, the entire state, with silver dollars two feet deep, the entire state, and then you blindfold a man and send him across the state to find just one silver dollar in that stack, that is equivalent odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies from the Old Testament. Eight prophecies is nothing compared to the plethora of things that point to Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about 
the time when Jesus would come, how he would be born, where he would be born, that somebody would come before him to announce his ministry. It, would, it prophesied of the place of his ministry, the nature of his ministry. It talks about the nature of what he would teach. It talks about his character, who he would connect with, that his mission would be the remission of sins. It deals with the fact that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his closest companions for 30 pieces of silver. It mentions that his disciples would abandon him, that he would suffer crucifixion, that he would experience injustice while establishing justice forever. It it goes on and on and on. The witness of the apostles is verified by the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is one of the most rewarding things about reading the Bible is when we invest ourselves into seeing what God has done and presented, it only deepens our faith that these things could never have been accomplished by the mind of man or multiple men even attempting to work together and corroborate their stories. All right. So with these prophecies specifically directed to the kingdom, notice at the end of Acts chapter 1 verse 3 again, Jesus and his resurrection, what was he focused on? Jesus spoke to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. By the way, this book ends, the book of Acts. Um, if you would, really quick, turn to Acts 28. Acts chapter 28, just the last couple verses of Acts chapter 28. So at the very end of the book, Paul is in prison in Rome. And it says this of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28, 30 and 31. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. The book of Acts is about the conquering of God's kingdom, the spread and teaching of the kingdom among all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples. You know, in verse 1 mentions it was all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the book of Acts is Jesus ruling through his apostles and disciples, conquering through those who believe and acting in them. So one thing really quickly, well, a few things about the kingdom. One thing we'll see in the book of Acts in the first two chapters, we're going to see the kingdom of God being expounded on. And one thing to know about the kingdom is the kingdom is the church. We see in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 5, that God has made the church the kingdom, a kingdom. But the kingdom is not only the church, it's not just the church. I think something to understand about the kingdom that's very helpful at the beginning of Acts, the kingdom is first of all the rule and dominion and the power of the ruler himself. And then secondarily, but also connected with that, it is those who submit to the ruler as well. Bring your attention back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That, secondarily, so first, Jesus inherits this dominion, glory, and kingdom. That now, all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. So the kingdom is primarily, it is the rule and the dominion and the power of the ruler himself and then connected with that and irreplaceable with it 
is that those who submit to his rule are also the kingdom as well. Because the kingdom of God is shared with those who believe as Jesus is a brother of all believers. So, final point of the first three verses. Jesus' ascension established his kingdom forever. Because Jesus inherited a rule in heaven that would never be destroyed or undone. And from that time forward, people of all languages would submit to that rule in his kingdom to be a part of it. So with that, verses 4 through 11, and I'll read these verses again. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The first thing I want to talk about with this is in verse 6. The kingdom was still greater than the apostles understood at this point. I'm not sure exactly what the apostles were thinking when they asked this question, but it seems like there was something being conveyed that showed a limited understanding that still needed to mature and change. Because it seems like the question is, so you've died and you've resurrected, you're here, so now is it that you go, in, in, you go into Jerusalem to rule there? So here, I think, is what we see. When Jesus ascended, and then in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out upon them, it brought the mystery and the glory and the nature of the kingdom into clear view. And of course, in Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles, it becomes more clear that this isn't about the Jews being over the Gentiles or anything like that, but God's kingdom is equally for all people. So it's not until Jesus ascended that things really became very clear. But I mentioned that it was greater than they understood for a reason. It's not that the kingdom was only being restored to Israel. There is a sense where I think in the New Testament scriptures, it mentions that there is the true Israel of God, those who are of faith, not of physical descent or relationship to Israel, but spiritual relationship to Jesus, they are the true Israel of God. So there is a sense where the kingdom was restored in that way. But I think what they did not understand fully until Jesus ascended is it's not so much Jesus restoring people only, but that his ascension was restoring the kingdom to the Father, which is the greater truth of the kingdom. That when the Holy Spirit was being poured out, it's not just the kingdom being restored in any physical sense at all, but that people were being unified with the Father. That people were being joined with him in heaven. That the hope would not be any earthly promise, but a heavenly promise. That people would one day be exalted with Christ. And that God would bring them to himself. 
And so the kingdom is not about just the restoration of people, but restoring relationships to God perfectly. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 2. And then notice in verse 8, the kingdom would spread starting in Jerusalem, which Jesus also said at the end of Luke's gospel. But it would go also into all in Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And how would they be empowered for this work? At the beginning of the verse, it says that the apostles would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Another thing that we're going to see, and I didn't put this on the board as a note, but another goal of the series is that the nature of the, the Holy Spirit's work in establishing God's kingdom is also clear, I think, in Acts chapters 1 and 2. So we'll try also with looking at the apostles and the importance of their work. The Holy Spirit as well is going to have a very vital function in the spread of the kingdom, in the beginning of the kingdom. You see that also in verse 5, when Jesus references something that had been said before about John the Baptist baptizing with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's a verse that gets very misunderstood. But again, I think Acts chapters 1 and 2 helps to clarify and give light to the things that are said here at the beginning. So we'll also see the Holy Spirit's work clarified in some very important ways. So I want to just finish the lesson thinking about why Jesus' ascension was so important. So in verses 9 through 11, notice how much it's emphasized they saw these things. In verse 9, it says, After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky... While he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven, or as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, the emphasis on seeing it. First thing about his ascension that I think is very important. Jesus' words are authoritative, absolute truth. If Jesus ascended into heaven then everything he said is absolute. It is an authoritative truth. And it doesn't matter who responds to his teaching. It doesn't matter how many people believe his teaching. If Jesus ascended into heaven, everything he said is completely verified and vindicated. Every detail of his teaching is truth. And men will be held accountable to every detail of his truth. But it's not just that it verifies Jesus' words. Jesus' life verifies the relevance of the Old Testament scriptures. It's not just that Jesus verifies the Old Testament scriptures. The apostles, as they spoke by the authority given to them by Jesus, it validates the apostles' teaching as absolute truth. So Jesus' ascension is important because Jesus ascending into heaven to rule as a king teaches us that Jesus' teaching, the teaching of the apostles, is absolute truth. Does that, by the way, just those words, is that important in the context of our culture today? I don't know if you guys have heard the term postmodernism, but that's kind of the idea that truth is relative. You know, you might believe something, and maybe that's your truth. Maybe I believe something, and that's my truth. Maybe our experiences dictate truth, or maybe a culture based on what that culture decides is correct, that culture decides truth. That's not how things work with Jesus and his ascension. 
There is no postmodernism with Jesus. What he says is sin is eternally sin. What Jesus says is pleasing to the Father is absolutely trustworthy, that it's pleasing to the Father. What Jesus said about the nature of the church and how we should love one another, how we should conduct ourselves, absolute truth. Next thing, in similar way, Jesus is a higher authority than any other on earth or in heaven. Many of the epistles will allude to this. Colossians mentions in many words, referring to authority, that Jesus is higher than them all. That there is no authority that is higher than Jesus' authority. In the book of Acts, we see this again and again, that the apostles and the early church were continuously getting in trouble for their teaching by governing authorities. But when they were in trouble for what they knew the king, Jesus, willed, they would not submit to those who are of a lesser authority. And so the apostles, when they were flogged by the Jewish authorities, they said, we must obey God rather than men. When Paul the apostle was on trial in the Roman court, he wasn't interested in obeying those authorities when they contradicted Jesus' will. His interest was helping all people see that Jesus is the highest authority. And so if Jesus ascended into heaven then Jesus is a greater authority than anyone in this room or outside of it. Jesus is a higher authority than your boss at work. Jesus is a higher authority than the governor or the present president or any other dictator that exists in the world. And what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we rebel against those of a lower authority than Jesus, but it does mean that his words always take priority. Jesus' will always wins because he is the highest authority. All will be held accountable to him. Finally, the urgency of repentance is rooted in Jesus' ascension. I want to finish as an invitation with Acts chapter 3. Starting in verse 13, this is what we see as the common appeal in the book of Acts, that Jesus' ascension It establishes the urgency of repentance. The angels who spoke to the apostles referred to this in a way when they said that this Jesus will return in the same way that you saw him ascend. And so the promise is that all will be held accountable to the rule of Jesus one day. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man who you, whom you see and know, And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Referring to a lame man, a man who could not walk, who was healed just earlier in the chapter. Verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets from ancient time. Moses said, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul, every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So he's speaking to the Jewish nation at large here in Jerusalem. But the point remains the same. That Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. That to the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus has ascended into heaven, then as we've mentioned many times, there will absolutely be a judgment both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And that is a certainty that we put our hope in, in salvation, that we will appear before God to be with him. But to those who disobey the rule of Jesus, the fact of his ascension then guarantees that there will be a judgment where God will judge those who are unrighteous and he will cast them out of his presence forever. That is a guarantee that the ascension of Jesus proves. And so the appeal this morning is the fact of Jesus' ascension teaches the things that the apostles here were speaking of. That this doesn't need to be a terrifying promise alone of judgment, but of freedom and liberty. That Jesus ascended to restore us to God, to restore the kingdom to God, to bring us to an everlasting hope of eternal life in him. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, we would love to help you in any way we can spiritually as we stand and sing an invitation song.